If you have tasted the bitter sting of divorce, I pray that those are some of the lessons that you have learned. However, not everyone will learn those lessons because too many are in a judgmental environment, a church circumstance that is anything but gracious or healing. I don't know about you, but I grew up in a church experience where divorce was seen as almost the unpardonable sin. If your marriage ended in divorce, whether or not there was good reason or good cause, none of that mattered. The reality was, as far as the church was concerned, there's a dark cloud that's above your head, and God forbid you remarry, because when you do, you're guilty of adultery. Jesus said so. In concluding a six-part series of messages on family, I thought it relevant, even necessary, to tackle this subject today, the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Seems to me that everybody who's serious about their faith, in other words, everybody who wants to examine God's principles, His law, because they want to honor God with their life, everybody has a clear opinion as to what they believe about marriage, divorce, and remarriage until they find themselves in a broken marriage. Then they're not so sure. Even those who have been raised and reared in the church, even familiar with this book, they're very clear as to what they believe about marriage, divorce, and remarriage until they find themselves in a deposition, arguing over who gets possession of the car, child custody, and financial discrepancies. The issue is greatly complex. And sadly, over the years, traditionally, the church has taken a very simple and yet a very hard line concerning those who divorce and remarry. Partly because of the misunderstanding of the passages we're going to examine today. In other words, I'm not afraid to say it, there's a lot of bad teaching surrounding Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7 out there in many of our churches. But also, I think, and more prolifically, we're just quicker to judge than we are to extend grace. So if you brought a Bible today, I want you to open first to Matthew chapter 19, and eventually we're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 19, we're going to read a statement Jesus made, and from that statement, many churches develop or embrace their hard line against marriage, divorce, and remarriage. There's no reason if you've gone through a divorce that you ought to feel like you're settling for some consolation prize when you remarry, that God can somehow no longer bless your union because you failed at the first one and blew it up, and the second one is adulterous and out of bounds. The Bible does not teach that, and I want to show you that today. The issue of divorce is pervasive in our culture. Just 40 years ago, when I was a little leaguer in South Florida, there was only one player on my team whose parents were divorced, only one. There were 16 or 18 12-year-olds on my little league team, and only one whose parents were divorced. Today, there are many among us, including myself, who've walked that bitter path, who know that heart wrench. If you've never been divorced or felt its sting, you know somebody who has. 
In fact, very rarely do I engage a potential groom and a potential bride in my premarital counseling and I start asking questions about their family. Very rarely is the case that both the bride and the groom's parents are still together. Very rarely. You've heard the statistic, half of all marriages end in divorce in the United States of America. That's not completely accurate. A more accurate sentiment is 35% of first marriages end in divorce. That's better than one out of three. If you haven't tasted divorce, again, you know someone who has. Divorce and problematic marriages and remarriage is so prolific in American culture that we've developed a few defense mechanisms to kind of cope with it. One of them is humor. I mean, some of the best jokes are marriage jokes, right? Some of the best jokes are divorce jokes, right? Some of the funniest sitcoms on television revolve around dysfunctional families or families that are headed for divorce court. And we sit in our homes and we laugh. Why? Because we're uncomfortable about the subject. We know the pain that's associated with it. And so we embrace humor to try to get by. I read about a couple that was in a car accident and the wife was nervously waiting in the emergency room because she was pretty much okay, but the husband was in surgery. And finally, after what seemed like an eternity, the doctor came out in his scrubs and he pulled down his mask and he looked this woman in the eyes and he said, Mrs. White, I got to be honest with you. I don't like the looks of your husband. She said, well, I don't either, but he's so good to the children. <clears throat> There was a woman in the church who lost her husband. He went to see Jesus and Billy Graham far too soon. And she wrestled for weeks as to what she would inscribe on his tombstone. Should it say this? Should it say that? She wanted just the right statement to encapsulate their relationship, to demonstrate their love. And finally, she arrived at this one. Rest in peace until we meet again. Much of the confusion surrounding divorce and remarriage comes from Christ's own words in Matthew chapter 19. When I read Matthew chapter 19, specifically verse 9 in a moment, you're going to say, oh, that's it. That's the verse I've heard. That's the rule from the Bible regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage. I've heard it before. Someone has used it on me. But I want to show you something today from both this passage as well as the writings of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it doesn't mean what you think it means. If it means what you think it means, then we've got a serious problem because it appears, on the surface at least, that Jesus says one thing and Paul says another. Read with me, beginning in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 19. Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. Now, if you're familiar with the gospel narrative, you know this is commonplace. The Pharisees considered themselves the guardians of all righteousness, okay? I call them religious supermen. Uh, they believed they were righteous before God because they had made themselves that way. So they considered themselves insiders, like churchy religious people, and Jesus was the outsider. And so often when you read through the gospel narrative, the, the Pharisees, because they saw Jesus as an outsider, a threat even, to their self-made righteousness, they tried to trap him. They tried to test him. Remember, whenever you're reading the words of Jesus, in my Bible they're read, you need to examine the context. 
Because when Jesus was talking to or addressing the Pharisees, his number one prerogative, his number one goal was to convince them that they weren't as righteous as they thought. Such is the case in Matthew chapter 19. You see, the Pharisees believed that they had made themselves righteous by the laws they lived by, by the rules they embraced, by their behavior. They didn't need God's or anyone else's help becoming righteous. That's why in Matthew chapter 5, remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, if you hate somebody, you're guilty of murder in the eyes of God. Because hate and murder are the same. Now, we know otherwise, right? Hate and murder are not the same. He also said in that same passage, if you lust after someone who's not your wife, you're guilty of adultery in the eyes of God. Now, we know that lust and adultery are not the same. So why does he make a statement like that? He makes a statement like that because the Pharisees assumed, since I've never killed anyone and I've never committed adultery, I must be righteous. Jesus was trying to convince the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, that they weren't as righteous as they thought they were. Such is the case here. Remember, it's the Pharisees who approach him to test him. Keep reading. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. Okay? Now, the Pharisees, like all men in that culture, by the way, had all the power in the marriage. Do, do you understand that in Jesus' day, as it remains in that part of the world still to this day, that husbands could divorce wives, but wives could not divorce husbands? Did you know that? So the Pharisees asked Jesus, is it lawful, is it acceptable before God, for a husband to divorce his wife for any reason whatsoever, for any and every reason. Again, the Pharisees thought they were righteous because the only time they got divorced was when they had, quote, good reason in their mind. Of course, they could make up their own good reason. What they're doing is they're contrasting men in the culture who would divorce on a whim with their own standard of self-righteousness. Well, we only divorce when we have good reason. Again, keep reading. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Remember, this is God's plan from the very beginning. We examined it a few weeks ago. Genesis chapter 2, one man, one woman married for life. That is God's, listen to these words, ideal, holy, righteous standard. From the very beginning, God established the ideal, the holy, and the righteous standard in marriage. One man marries one woman for life. Two become one flesh, and in God's mind, they cannot be separated. Verse 7. Why then, they asked, did Moses command, interesting word, underline that in your mind, circle it in your Bible. Why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and then send her away? The certificate of divorce comes from the Old Testament. It's Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses didn't command that men divorce their wives, as the Pharisees indicate. 
Moses made allowances for divorce. He established the guidelines of divorce because the men in that culture who, can, who had all the power were ignorant as to their own failure in relationships and marriage. Remember, uh, remember the Christmas story when Mary turns up pregnant and Joseph knows the baby's not his. The Bible says that Joseph was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public abuse. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. The two words you need to consider in that statement are, Joseph was righteous the way Pharisees defined righteousness. Joseph was righteous because he adhered to the strict codes of the moral Old Testament law. He didn't want to expose her to shame, so he would quietly divorce her using the guidelines spelled out in Deuteronomy chapter 24. So, keep reading. Jesus replies, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Very different word from command, right? Two totally different words. They come from two totally different Greek words. The Pharisees weren't even close when they said, wait a minute, didn't Moses command us to divorce our wives? And Jesus said, no, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. In that male-dominant Old Testament culture where men had all the power, the men didn't even see their own failure in relationships. The men didn't even see their own sin. The Pharisees didn't even see their own unrighteousness. But it was not that way from the beginning. All right, here it comes. Buckle up. You ready? Here's verse 9. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, in other words, except for adultery, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Now, aren't you familiar with that verse? That's the verse that gets shoved in the face of someone who's gone through a divorce, someone considering a divorce. God forbid someone who is divorced and is now considering remarriage. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Look at verse 9. Jesus said, anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So what do we do? Because traditionally the church has liked things simple, black and white, basic, easily understood and digestible, we turn verse 9 into, quote, the rule on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Remember, church, the Bible is not a rule book. Our Heavenly Father did not create this inspired record so that we could turn it into a long list of do's and don'ts, so that we could highlight one phrase, so that we could zero in on one verse, so we could capture, it, capture one statement and claim it the rule on divorce, marriage, remarriage, or anything else. I want to show you, remember... The primary audience here are the Pharisees who were very casual about marriage and divorce. I want to show you today that anyone who commits, who divorces their wife, as the Pharisees asked, and Jesus responds, commits adultery, Jesus said. In other words, people have read that one statement, they come to the conclusion that all divorce, regardless of the circumstances, is sin. And guess what, church? It is. It is because it is a departure from the holy, ideal, righteous standard of one man, one woman married for life. 
You see, that's one of the definitions of sin. Sin isn't always I choose to do what is immoral before the, the eyes of, or in the eyes of God. Sometimes sin is trying to hit a mark that I simply can't hit because I'm human. That's the sin of adultery in Matthew 19, verse, 19, uh, verse 9. When Jesus said, anyone who divorces his wife and then marries another commits adultery. What he's saying is, you've missed the mark of God's ideal, holy, and righteous standard for marriage. One man, one woman, for life. That was supposed to show the Pharisees that they were unrighteous. Now, just imagine for a moment, and I don't want to make light of this, but just imagine for a moment that we weren't talking about divorce and remarriage. Let's imagine for a moment we were talking about health and well-being. And let's imagine for a moment that the Bible said, Jesus even said, a man who is six foot, two inches tall, ought weigh no more than 185 pounds. And you're sitting out there and you're thinking, hmm, I'm a smooth 230. I don't think I'll ever live up to that standard. Wait a minute, that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that if you are healthy, if you are godly, if you are righteous before God and you're over six feet tall, you cannot weigh more than 185 pounds. What would we say? We'd say, man, I've been exercising. Man, I've been curbing back what I've been trying to eat, but I just can't do that. I can't reach that standard. I can't hit that mark. A lot of people feel the same way when it comes to a bad marriage. And that's what this is. Look, I have seen people for years carry water alone in a marriage. I've seen people for years try and hold it together. One spouse out of two, one spouse trying to keep it together. And eventually there's a breaking point. Eventually there's a tipping point. What Jesus wanted these Pharisees, remember these professional righteous men, what he wanted them to understand was that you're not as righteous as you think. Because no matter why you divorce your wife, you can have a list as long as my arm. No matter why you divorce your, li- your wife, it's sin in the eyes of a holy God. Now, take your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now I want to show you something the Apostle Paul wrote. You see, the follower of Christ who's gone through a divorce, it may seem like a failure that nobody can define for them. Nobody can tell you how bad it's going to be, how bad it should be. Nobody can tell you how long its effects are going to linger. All we know as followers of Jesus is that we failed, and now somebody's telling us that we'll never be happy, we'll never find love, we'll never be blessed of God if we do. How in the world do you move on from that? Look, there's a whole lot we can't put into words when it comes to marriage and divorce and remarriage, but there are a few things that we know for sure. Number one, we know for sure that divorce is never God's best. Please don't ever try and convince yourself that God is leading you to divorce. I've had people sit in my office and tell me, it looks like God is opening the door for me to leave my husband. No, he's not. Because divorce is never God's best. The Bible says in the Old Testament, God hates divorce. He despises divorce because he knows how painful it can be on a family. He knows how harsh it can become in the lives of children, not just for months or years, even decades. We know that divorce is never God's plan. We also know that when husbands and wives participate, divorce is unnecessary. 
When I've engaged my role, my responsibility as a loving, honoring, sacrificial leader, husband in my home, and my wife, again, Ephesians 5, has embraced her God-ordained role of respect and love and honor in our home. The sky's the limit. We're not talking about divorce because together we are working as one for the common goal. So when a husband and a wife participate in a marriage, it's a moot point. Here's the third thing we know for sure. God is gracious even when our peers are not. To those who have experienced the breakup of a marriage, to those who have felt the sting of divorce, you need not settle for the consolation prize. You see, we have a loving Heavenly Father who recognizes our weaknesses, who understands our breaking points. He forgives our trespasses, and he's fully capable of blessing our second marriage even when others may look upon us in judgment regarding the first. Now, before we get into 1 Corinthians... Let me describe the environment here. Because whenever you read your Bible, context is king. Why is Paul addressing marriage, divorce, and remarriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7? Because in the Corinthian culture of the first century, marriage, divorce, and remarriage had run off the tracks. It had left the tracks. Marriage was in the ditch. In the first century Grecian culture, remember, Because of the Hellenistic influence of people in that community, remember Hellenism is all about doing what feels right, it's all about the pursuit of pleasure, it's all about feeling good about who you are and what you do. Well, in that climate, that church climate of Corinth, the institution of marriage was in trouble. I mean, almost everything was tolerated. Sex outside of marriage, that's fine, go ahead if it makes you feel good. Adultery, homosexuality, polygamy, does not sound unlike our culture, frankly. In Paul's day, ideas on marriage were varied and very extreme. So imagine, as a reflection of the perverted and warped culture regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage, the church was a little microcosm of that same influence. So in the church, in fact, Paul addresses something that is twisted in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Right there in the church, they had a a marriage that split and the wife went and married the stepson. In first century Grecian culture, you had men who had all the power, all the authority, cut loose their wives and marry their own daughters. And nobody batted an eye. You had men that would take on multiple love partners who were under the age of 15. And much of that was spilling over into the church. So, In the church of Corinth, there were basically two extremes when it came to this idea of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. On one hand, to some, everything was permissible. Everything. Including multiple partners, even pedophilia. Well, there were others in the church that looked at that as a reflection of our culture, and it sickened them. And maybe they were the self-righteous kind of feeling Christ followers in the first century church. They retreated to this extreme. And so to others, anything sexual was regarded as carnal or base or animal-like and therefore was avoided even in the marriage relationship. Okay, do you see what we've got here? We've got two responses to the cultural climate of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Some say, hey, go with the flow. If it feels good, do it. 
Others in the church said, that sickens me. I'm going to retreat so far to this extreme that we're going to stop having sex because anything regarded as sexual was considered out of bounds for many of these people. And some would even go to the, to the length of, hey, we'd be better off if we just got divorced. We're married now. Let's just get divorced. Let's get divorced so we're not entangled by any of those romantic, intimate, sexual kinds of things in response to those two extremes. So Paul's words, as we read them in a moment, beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 7, sound pretty extreme, but they are extreme because the culture and the situation and the circumstance was extreme. Read with me, beginning in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Now for the matters you wrote about. Here we go. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. How's that for a rule? For those of you who like to turn the Bible into a rule book, what about that rule? Husbands? Anybody living by that rule, husbands? After all, Paul said, it's good for a man not to have sex. Amen. Right? The Bible's not a rule book. That's why you don't read it like that. Keep reading. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relationships with his own wife, each woman with her own husband. Do you understand that when Paul wrote that, he was single? Paul was not married. Paul assumed that any moment Jesus Christ was going to return and establish his kingdom. So in Paul's mind, he didn't have time for romance. He didn't have time for sex. He didn't have time for intimacy and marriage. In fact, he's going to say later, I wish everybody was single because we could be 100% devoted to Christ. But since I know it's so difficult to live without physical touch, to live without companionship, to live without sexual intercourse, every husband ought to have his own wife, singular, and every wife ought to have her own husband. That's God's ideal for plan for marriage. Once again, one husband, one wife for life. Keep reading. Verse 3, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. Stop for a minute because I don't know if you know what you just read. 2,000 years ago, a biblical author once again is promoting equality between men and women, male and female. Do you understand in this culture as it is today in that culture, Sexual gratification, sexual satisfaction was all about a man's prerogative. It had nothing to do with a woman. But along comes Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And unlike the cultural message, which was men have the power and women do not, Paul comes along and says men ought to take care of their wives just like wives ought to take care of their husbands. Interesting, isn't it? Verse 4, in the same way, husband does not have the authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Verse 5, or excuse me, yeah, verse 5. Do not deprive each other, perhaps by mutual consent and for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. In other words, don't cut off your husband in the bedroom. Don't cut off your wife in the bedroom. Don't stop meeting one another's physical needs. And by the way, I don't think we're out of bounds to extend this idea to emotional needs as well. Not just physical needs. The context here is physical intimacy. I get that. But in a healthy relationship, men understand their role, men embrace their responsibility, and they work at it, thereby not cutting off their wife, and vice versa. Wives work and not cut off their husbands. Paul is saying very simply, 
in this twisted, perverted, warped culture in which we live, so much so that it's spilling over into the church, and you guys have run to your corners. Some say everything's fine. Others say, I don't want to have anything to do with any of it. In fact, I'm considering getting a divorce so I can be more spiritual. Paul's saying, hang on, hang on. Let's think this through. Verse, end of verse 5. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Verse 6. I say this to you as a concession, not a command. Guess what? Exact same two words that Jesus used in Matthew 19. Moses didn't command you to divorce. He permitted you. Here it's translated concession. Paul says, I say this not as a command, but as a concession. Excuse me, let me find my place here. There you go. Excuse me, not as a concession, but as, uh, not as a command. Verse 7. I wish that all of you were as I am. That's what I told you about earlier. Paul was not married. I wish everybody were single. We could serve God 100%. We wouldn't be distracted by marriage, family, romance, intimacy, or sex. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift. Another has that. He's talking about the gift of celibacy. Paul had it, but not everyone else does. Verse 8. Here's where it gets interesting. Verse 8. Now, to the unmarried and the widows... In the following 15 verses or so, Paul uses three terms to describe three kinds of people in various stages of relationship in the Corinthian church. In verse 25, he uses the word virgin. The word virgin refers to people in the church who'd never been married. They'd never been married because they'd never had sex. So he calls them a virgin. And then here he refers to the widows. The widows, that's self-explanatory. They lost someone they loved to death. But what about that word unmarried? To whom does that refer? As you will see in a moment, both in this verse, verse 8, as well as in verse 11, the word unmarried refers to someone who was once married, but is presently single, not by death, they're not widowed, but by divorce. So another way of reading verse 8 is, now to the divorced among you, and the widows, I say, it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. Remember Paul's outlook, his perspective. Verse 9, but if they cannot control themselves, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Wait a minute! I thought Jesus said, if you remarry, you're committing adultery. To the Pharisees, who were flippant about marriage, who had all the power, who had all the control, yeah, and yeah, divorce and remarriage is a failure on some level because we've missed the mark of God's ideal standard. But notice what Paul is saying. Paul is saying to the widows who are now unmarried and to the unmarried who once were married but are now divorced. If you can't live without that physical affection, if you need that companionship, if you crave that intimacy, I get it. It's better to marry than to burn with passion. You get that? You get that? Keep reading. Verse 11. But if she does, if she does, oh, excuse me, verse number 10. To the married, I give this command. Not I, but the Lord. Remember this extreme group over here. They're married, but they're thinking about ending it because they want to be more devoted to Christ. Think about them. To the married, I give this command, not I, but the Lord. 
A wife must not separate from her husband. That's the ideal. That's the holy standard of Genesis 2. But if she does, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And a husband must not divorce his wife. The context of verses 10 and 11 is this pious group of self-righteous religious people who thought, hey, the best thing for me to do if I want to follow Christ wholeheartedly is to cut you loose. Because I don't need the distraction of intimacy, of companionship. I don't need family. I don't need the distraction of sex. I want to follow Christ wholeheartedly. That could lead some of those falsely pious people to advocate divorce in order to be single. And Paul says, don't do that either. Now, I have never known a couple who've divorced casually. I've never known anyone flippant about the breakdown of their family. I told you earlier, 35% of first marriages end in divorce. And in my view, in every case, I'm sure the issues are substantial. The emotions are authentic. Listen to me, church. You should do everything within your power to keep your marriage strong and healthy. I got to wrap this up very quickly. Follow me with four things. Number one, that means date God way. If you're not married, Make sure you date God's way. A commitment to godly principles is going to yield lasting results. Do you know, do you know, the Bible makes this so clear, and when it does, it makes itself sound so antiquated and out of touch, but the Bible always reserves sex for marriage. And do you know that modern-day statistical information bolter, bolsters that principle from the New Testament? Do you know that you are more than two times as likely to divorce if you're sexually active before marriage. So if you're going to date, date God's way. There are four ways that we connect in a relationship. I like to draw a triangle and kind of show it to you. We connect on a spiritual level. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, look, you're way better off, ahead of the crowd even, if you connect with someone in a ro romantic relationship that sees God the same way you see God. Paul says... It's a bad idea to marry somebody who doesn't see God the way you do. We make a spiritual connection first. Then there's an intellectual connection. We learn about each other. We're courting. We're growing. We're finding out what makes each other tick. Then there's an emotional connection. We experience life together. We're happy together. We're sad together. We get angry together. We're afraid together. And then finally, after making the lifelong commitment, we have a physical connection. Now, Here's what we do in our culture. We flip that exactly upside down. We try to build everything on the physical. If the sex is good, well, then I can wait for the spiritual connection and the emotional connection and the intellectual connection. I got news for you. You will likely never make those connections so long as the only thing keeping you together is a, is a meaningful sex relationship. So if you're going to date, date God's way. Here's number two. Marry God's way. The time to start saving your marriage is now. Again, in my years of working with couples, please hear me when I say this, I have never run across a couple whose husband and wife were both committed to the responsibility of sharing the work of marriage who weren't able to, weren't able to solve their problems. Again, when a husband and a wife are both working toward the same common goal of two becoming one, the sky is the limit. So, marry God's way. Work at it. Number three, divorce God's way. Only as a last resort. I don't think I've ever heard those three words put together in my life. Divorce God's way. I don't think I've ever heard that. 
only as a last resort. There is no such thing as a squeaky clean divorce. I think we like to convince ourselves this is the case, but it's not. Even in the cases I mentioned, there are always extenuating circumstances that cloud the issue and muddy the water. Do you realize that no one person is 100% at fault when a marriage dissolves? So if you're going to divorce, make sure it's only as a last resort. If you have one ounce of try left in you, my counsel to you is to try. If you have one more day that you can hold on, my counsel to you is to hold on. And then finally, number four, remarry God's way. Recognize there's hope after divorce. I've titled the message, Hope, Hope. Because yes, there is hope after divorce. God has not pronounced you second rate. There is hope for lasting love, but you got to be aware. You got to be sure that you're committed to doing it God's way. If you're going to ask God to bless this new relationship, you've got to be willing to try and build it his way. Here's what that means. That means make sure you heal fully from the past. Make sure you heal. Bitterness and sorrow will lie dormant in you for years. And guess what? It'll make a second appearance in the next relationship. Number two, seek counsel concerning the old baggage because that's what we do. We take all the problems, all the shortcomings from the first relationship, and we march them right into the next relationship. Hi, honey, I'm home. And number three, date God's way. So we end where we began. If you're starting over, be sure you really start over. Start over on a path that is ripe with God's blessing. It makes all the difference in the world. Again, there is much we do not know. Everybody's marriage and the disillusion thereof is extremely complex. God has not assigned any one of us to make that kind of a judgment, but here's what we know for sure. We know that number one, divorce is never God's best. Number two, when husbands and wives participate, divorce is unnecessary. And number three, God is gracious even when peers are not. Let's pray. Father, I'm looking at a whole auditorium full of people who have experienced divorce or know someone who has. God, I pray that you might ignite in them a passion this day first for you and a freedom that comes with it knowing that they're not forced into some sort of second-class relationship or that, that regardless of what some religious person has told them in the past, they're not settling for second best. God, wake us up in our communities, in this church, that we might date your way, that we might do marriage the way you would have us do it, that if it all falls apart and we don't know how to fix it, make sure we divorce only as a last resort. And if we pick up the pieces and try and begin again, make sure we do that, do that your way as well. I pray because of my faith in you, Father, with much respect, knowing how desperately we need you in our marriages, homes, and families. Because of Christ, amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you go make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.